You're listening to Chris Farrell's On Watch podcast from Judicial Watch. I'm Chris Farrell, and this is On Watch. I'm Chris Farrell, Director of Investigations and Research for Judicial Watch, and I'm joined today by Dr. Stephen Hatfield. He's a specialist physician and a virologist with a military background and separate master's degrees in microbial genetics, radiation biochemistry, and experimental pathology. His medical fellowships include Oxford University, the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, uh, and also uh, the NRC, where he studied Ebola virus at the U.S. Army Institute for Infectious Diseases at Fort Detrick. And uh, full disclosure, Dr. Stephen Hatfield is a good personal friend of mine, but I also know that he is uh, literally a genius on this subject of COVID, on viruses generally. And uh, we think it's real important on watch on this show to do a deep dive on topics that other people just give sound bites to or are very busy taking down dictation from the government as to what the latest pronouncement or mandate is. But they very rarely ask tough questions and peel back layers uh, on the details. And that's what we're trying to do on this podcast uh, that we call On Watch. So, Dr. Stephen Hatfield, welcome to our show. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be with you, and thanks for joining us. Um, so I know uh, that you are, I mean, some people would use this term loosely or lightly, but I know that you are literally uh, an expert, a real live uh Direct first-hand experience expert. I would refer to you, and I'm not being, uh, I'm not exaggerating. You're a genius on this topic. You know infectious diseases. You know viruses uh, like nobody else I've known. Uh, you've written on it in in professional medical journals. You last, I guess, a year back from October, you published a book, Three Seconds to Midnight. Uh, that predicted exactly what happened only a few months later when it came to uh, COVID. Um, I just want to get your your 100,000-foot view, your big overview of uh, where we are. Where is the United States sitting with respect to COVID uh, in December of 2021? What's the the broad view that you have? It's an unmitigated... uh medical response disaster, the way this has been handled. Um, Known principles have been ignored. Uh, Everything sacrificed for the introduction of still highly experimental uh, vaccines. And uh, Dr. Steve, you've written recently, I guess in the last month or so, a, a fact paper for parents who are concerned about the so-called vaccine and the pressure on on vaccinating their young children uh, with respect to COVID-19. I know that there's obviously been various mandates and demands by the Biden administration with respect to federal workers and even private companies that's been jammed up in the courts, thankfully. Uh, But of course, increasingly there's pressure on young children to be vaccinated. I think New York City brags that something like 70,000 young kids, school-aged kids have been vaccinated. But you've got a you've got an information paper on your website, which is drstephenhatfield.com, 
Uh, and on that, on your website, you've got a paper you've written uh, on that subject of COVID vaccination for young children. Um, tell us, tell parents in particular, families, what they need to know about that. Well, the paper has been peer reviewed. It's now on the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons website. Um, <clears throat> basically, the thing you need to remember is that these experimental messenger RNA vaccines were developed against the original Wuhan strain of the virus that broke out in China. That clade, we call them, or that species of the COVID-19 virus is now essentially extinct. It is mutated into other types, the most recent being the, uh, the Botswana strain or clade. And before that, and still passing around the world, the Delta strain of the virus. Um, so this was the fallacy of trying to vaccinate yourself out of such a uh, RNA viral disease as COVID-19. By the time you've manufactured whatever preparation it is, and in this case, it's not a traditional vaccine, it's a F FDA classifies it as the message RNA vaccines as biological preparations. By the time you've manufactured this and distributed it widespread through the population, the virus has changed. So what you're trying to raise protection against is is it's not there it's a, it's a different virus every time these rna viruses reproduce they tend to make a mistake in their genetic blueprints this is a survival advantage for the virus uh, under pressure it will allow it to jump to new hosts such as from an animal into man or under a vaccination program it it allows the virus an escape from the vaccine it, just by changing a few amino acids in its outer structure it can develop the ability to evade your immune response until your own immune system catches up with it steve i remember you telling me literally a couple of years ago that it is the business of viruses to mutate it's what they do for a living. And so uh, no one should be surprised that COVID continues to mutate and change and morph and twist and turn, and that it will continue to do so, uh, I guess, forever and ever until somehow it becomes extinct. Is that correct? Yeah, this was realized. And contrary to what a lot of Americans believe, uh, the president was taking this seriously very early on. And while some members of the uh, community weren't, such as Dr. Fauci, um, a number were. And there was some real concerned fear. We knew the figures coming out of China could not be correct. Remember, they 
they were well aware early on that they had a major problem and that this COVID virus was person-to-person transmissible, and they lied about it for weeks. Well, not everyone believed China. And there were a lot of efforts underway behind the scenes to get ready for this thing. And because of the sorry state of affairs of our largest cities, most of them, virtually no preparation was in place. And they'd been told for 20 years something like this was coming. Money was actually given to local authorities uh, as, as, as long ago as a decade ago to get themselves ready. Um, the plan was shared with them. Here's what you need to do, step one, step two, step three, step four. And they did nothing, particularly New York City. And you must remember, New York City is part of a New York mega region. I think it's absolutely critical to highlight um that there was a national pandemic plan. Yeah. Uh, like you just said, various uh, municipalities and regions have been given money and resources and policy statements on what to do and how to do it. And uh, it appears to me, or at least it's my impression, is that uh, one of the first things they did was they they abandoned <laughs> Uh, the plan and the resources and the guidelines, uh, and they all kind of went off uh, on their own. And, and while they were doing their own thing and dreaming up their own response, uh, they spent an awful lot of time attacking the Trump White House in their response. Yeah, they did nothing but attack the Trump White House. Look, this national, it was realized in 2005 under the Bush administration that you could not have a top-down plan for the United States because our cities are different. What would work in Detroit may not work in New York, may not work in Orlando, may not work in Los Angeles. Each sort of local authority was different. And within those cities, down to the suburbs, they were different. So it would boil down to the local authorities and the small towns and the suburbs that make up a city to develop their own plan. And if each local authority could handle a few things, such as the sudden demand for doctors, the sudden demand for hospital beds, if we had a drug, how could we distribute the drug quickly and efficiently? What were we going to do? Were we going to close schools or not? If these things, extra hospital beds, are we going to have alternate care sites set up in, in, in high schools like we've done in previous pandemics for polio or influenza? How are we going to handle these things? And each local authority would, would have a variant of the, the overall requirements. And none of this was done. Then when they fell short and the fingers started pointing, the governors and the mayors pointed towards the executive branch of the government. No, 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 no. In 2005, it was very clearly outlined. This is what the U.S. government would do. And they did it. We had a national strategic stockpile. 
we had ways to rapidly try to find existing drugs for treatment. We had, uh, you know, vaccine development to be funded. We tried like a Manhattan Project. You know, we tried three different ways to enrich uranium for the first A-bomb. Fantastically expensive. Huge factories developed to separate the uranium isotopes because we didn't know which one would work. So we tried everything in the hopes one of them would work, which it did. And this was the same thing. There were so many approaches, we had to try them all. And this extended down to even to our drugs. 80% of our drugs come out of China. We had early on identified a drug backed by scientific data. And Mr. Fauci is wrong backed by very good observational data that hydroxychloroquine would fit in with the national pandemic plan. And that was because vaccines, you can't develop a vaccine for every virus. We've, we've shown uh, respiratory syncytial virus, that was a complete disaster. There's some viruses you cannot develop a vaccine for with our present technology. So the vaccine was never a sure shot. In addition, when the original SARS virus, the SARS-1 virus broke out in 2003, they had a candidate vaccine, but when they gave it to the animals and then they challenged the animals with live virus, it, it looks like uh, a bomb went off in their lungs. Uh, they all died. So we knew vaccine, yes, it had to be tried. But there was no guarantee it would work. What was more definitive was early outpatient drug treatment. So an infection is like a fire in your kitchen. When your stove catches fire, if you throw water on it immediately, shut the electricity off, throw water on it, you'll put the fire out. But you don't just sit there and watch it burn until the drapes are on fire and the whole kitchen's on fire and the house is on fire. You put it out early, and for COVID-19, that pail of water was called hydroxychloroquine. You catch it right when the patient starts to have symptoms. It's an incredibly safe drug, in spite of what people want you to believe. In fact, we even let nursing mothers and pregnant women take hydroxychloroquine. They can take that safely. There's never been any tremendous adverse cardiac events. Millions of people have taken the drug. It's more safe to take a tablet of hydroxychloroquine than it is an aspirin. Now, there's a few things we don't want to give it to. There's a genetic thing, prolonged QT syndrome, a couple things like this, but this is ruled out very quickly. I can tell you that... Um... What you're talking about and the practicality of what you're talking about, uh, the direct real effort to address the disease, the virus itself, in very practical ways, seems so alien, so removed from the, what really now has become clear with the, with the political machinations 
of people like Fauci uh, and even how they dealt with the Trump administration. Um, I know that you, you just said in your introduction, you're writing a, a book on this. Uh, I, I really look forward to, to reading that because there have been some people who have come out with very frank descriptions of what was going on. Uh, Dr. Scott Atlas has a book out, uh, a, uh, a, a, uh, not a medical doctor, but a PhD in epidemiology, a guy named Paul Elias Alexander has written extensively about this. There are some people who are, you know, giving very frank, very startling kind of alternative histories uh, to what, you know, you see Fauci on television talking about every day. And I know that you have your set of experiences as a as a volunteer consultant. Um, if you can, if you're comfortable doing so, I, I just want to get your feel. I know that you worked uh, with Peter Navarro on issues. What, what was what was the the uh, what was sort of your inside view of what was going on as to how the how well served was President Trump with these competing viewpoints that you've touched on? Well, he wasn't served well at all. I don't know where this COVID panel came from or who put it together. And I'm very loath to talk bad about other doctors. Um, but this COVID-19 panel was useless. It involved doctors that um, were used, they were from the HIV AIDS era and a viral disease that takes a couple years to kill you. This thing takes 14 days, COVID. And whatever lessons you learned with HIV are not equivocal, really. Um, it was a complete shambles, the response and the decisions that the COVID panel made. You know, a good master's degree student can design a PCR test that's reliable. And the entire CDC seemed unable to do this for months. Furthermore, Doctors have been prescribing medicines without ordering tests for centuries. It's only recently we've had, you know, helpful tests that we could order, sort of the last 70 years. Using a research tool like the polymerase chain reaction or PCR, uh, which is a research tool, for clinical diagnosis and mandating that this test had to be positive uh, before you could receive a drug to treat it. Although the tests weren't working that the CDC brought out, um, they were faulty. Again, a good master's degree student could have done a better job than the entire CDC. It's a complete shambles. And you had this little clique of people that knew each other. Uh, Dr. Burks was one of Dr. Fauci's students in the early days. 
Um, Dr. Renfield was in the mix somewhere there. And he's, he's a very nice man, really. And he's, he has an extremely good background. But I, he was just overloaded, I think. The conflicts of interest at the Center for Disease Control have developed over the last 50 years or so. The um, CDC director used to be um, rather a hollowed position, and you were there for a long time. Then it became a political appointment. And it, it just doesn't seem to be working. The uh, conflicts of interest are so great there that, well, they've proved, they've proved themselves inadequate. They serve the country very badly, terribly. And, um, it's, it's, it's a big problem. Doctors have been, if you have a safe drug, Let's put it this way, Chris. If I was practicing active medicine, like a general practice, and you came in to see me complaining of a cold, I'm not going to do a nasal swab. And, oh, by the way, it's flu season and everybody's got a cold, right? I'm not going to do a nasal swab, send it off, wait a week to get a result back, to find out which one of the 120 cold viruses are causing this. I mean, I'm going to treat you right then and there based on clinical suspicion. When you had a safe drug like hydroxychloroquine and you're in the middle of the pandemic, there's an old thing in medicine that when you hear hoofbeats, you don't think of canaries. You think of a horse or a zebra. Common sense. I'm in the middle of a pandemic. Your next door neighbors have it, or your kid has it. Now you've got it, same symptoms. I'm just going to go ahead and treat you. And when we started that practice, it was the first papers on this were published in July of 2020, July 1, I think. It showed a 51% reduction in mortality. This was rapidly confirmed by a Mount Sinai study with a 49% drop in mortality. And a very large Spanish study, which showed a 67% drop in mortality. Now, whether it's a randomized clinical trial or not, the drug is working. And the FDA had pulled the drug, scared the living daylights out of everyone, including doctors that were afraid to prescribe it because they said it would give you heart attacks. And people were getting heart attacks that had never taken the drug but had COVID. It was the virus causing it. Never once has the FDA admitted that it was the virus causing 
the adverse cardiac events and not hydroxychloroquine. Now you committed to getting rid of this drug or any sort of early outpatient treatment that the doctor could give you. Go home, take these hydroxychloroquine tablets, don't kiss anybody, quarantine yourself for a couple of days, you'll get better, and you won't end up in hospital. Even if you have some of these comorbidities, such as being overweight or pre-existing lung disease or diabetes, this type of thing. This was all ignored. The first papers came out overwhelming. They, FDA had already pulled the emergency use authorization on hydroxychloroquine. And we spent several months trying to get them to put it back in place. And they just simply refused. Yet the evidence was growing weekly. Right now there's 333 papers showing ivermectin to a lesser extent, hydroxychloroquine overwhelming. Yes, it does something that the FDA models were wrong. You could see that at the start of the pandemic. If it, the model said it, hydroxychloroquine wouldn't reach an effective concentration in the lung. Well, then why were people getting better that were put on it? This, when things are that disturbed and so wrong, you need to start looking at follow the money. So money, money is a topic I think that uh, certainly uh, drives uh, big pharma. And uh, you and I have chatted and talked about the fact that uh, money, power, and control are probably uh, an awful lot of the. Uh, I don't want to use the word inspiration. I guess, yeah, inspiration for a lot of what we're seeing. One of the things that I found particularly curious uh, is the, the government's uh, love of lockdowns. I mean, I know that this, this is a really authoritarian response to uh, what's supposed to be a, a medical problem, a public health problem, and uh, they can't resist lockdowns. So, we know what happened uh, when Fauci and company, you know, got on their lockdown fixation and we saw the consequences of that. We saw people that needed treatment and various screenings and surgeries. Uh, they missed them, whether it was a, you know, a cancer screening or missed surgery. We saw educational losses backdrop. I, there's kids who haven't been to school in a couple of years or a year and a half. It obviously bankrupted small businesses. It had a public health effect when it came to depression, drug and alcohol abuse. Uh, you know, you could, or when they could open businesses, you could open up an abortion clinic and a liquor store, but you couldn't open up a church, right? That was another one of the sort of disconnects on what they would allow and not allow. So there's this massive public health effect from lockdowns. And we now see that some European countries, Austria, a couple of weeks back, decided to lock down all unvaccinated. Is, is there, I mean, I'm supposed that there's somewhere that there's an instance where a lockdown is an effective medical treatment or, or public health response. But in your opinion, are lockdowns that we have seen and that we're currently seeing in response to Omicron, is lockdown ever really a good answer? Here's what happened, Chris. 
When the 2005 pandemic plan was put together, it could serve as basic thinking for any respiratory RNA viral infection. And for this, they went back and very carefully looked at the data. Some people at the National Security Council, some very smart people, by the way, under the Bush administration. And we could see a difference between certain cities that did do essentially a lockdown, although not to the same extreme that was done here and is being done here in some places, and cities that didn't, chiefly Philadelphia compared to St. Louis. Um, they weren't as extreme as what we have now, but it, they did involve school closures and banning public gatherings and closing the pubs. And um, they weren't faced in 1918 with the rapidity of air travel. Lindbergh still hadn't made his flight, if I remember correctly, across the Atlantic. They didn't have the problem of modern transportation by air. And there was some effectiveness, but you had to initiate these lockdowns very, 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 very early. Then this concept of asymptomatic infection appeared. Well, look, that never really did pan out, in my opinion. You can have the virus inside you, but you got to get it outside, and you've got to get it into a sufficient quantity, which is called a minimal infective human dose. For every virus out there, and we learned this from the old biowarfare days. Whether it's a bacteria or a virus or a rickettsia, to infect a human requires a specific number of organisms, microorganisms. If you're below that, and it's different for each organism, if it's tularemia or anthrax, those have different minimal infective human doses. Venezuelan equine encephalitis virus, smallpox virus, Ebola virus. For each of these microorganisms, they have a different minimal infective human dose. If you're infected below that dose, the number of, let's say, Ebola virus particles, you may run antibodies against it, and your body will make an innate immune response. And you can't ever remember being sick. It doesn't mean you are infectious, Chris. You've got to be able to get that same minimal infective human dose out into the environment where other people can get that number of microorganisms into their body. And then they pass it on. Having repeated very low dose exposures helps you to develop a bit of protection without 
actually having overt disease. The cases that have been looked at, remember very early on they were saying asymptomatic, the world is falling in. Well, possibly in some circumstances it did occur, but it wasn't predominant method of transmission. You've got to be extruding virus into the environment to be infectious. Um, there's cases even with bacteria. Mary Malone, typhoid Mary in the 1800s. Uh, she was a cook. She was immune to salmonella typhi, typhoid fever. But uh, she was passing it on to every family she worked for as a cook. These things do occur, but it's not the usual. Remember, what we're trying to do is leave our hospitals open so you can get your cancer surgery or your radiation therapy or your heart attack managed. And the trick for that was to have pre-planned alternate care sites closed down. You know, if the hospitals would actually look after the population they're responsible for, this all would have been done, but they don't do that anymore. Every hospital should have had plans for an alternate care site. What, what they do in New York, they started treating patients in the corridors. They didn't want to send them to the Javits Center that they finally got going. Bloody Como made the ship sail. I think it was the USS Comfort, the hospital ship. We had a big fight about this. Um, the comfort's designed for battlefield surgery, life-saving battlefield surgery. Uh, it has a use in earthquakes. It has a use in hurricanes, but it was designed for wartime injuries. It wasn't designed for highly infectious patients. So you send that ship to New York, people are going to get sick on board the ship which is exactly what happened. It was in dry dock at the time. They pulled it out of dry dock. They crewed it. They sailed it north, came into New York. Our beautiful picture, the boat coming in, and it just sat in the docks there for days because the hospitals didn't want to release their patients. So here's a question I have that goes to the long, this goes to the long-term consequences uh, from the public's perception. Um, and so what I'm talking about here is, you know, Jack and Mary Smith you know, out in one of those square states that know in the middle of the country that nobody pays attention to. Yeah. They've heard all the geniuses, right? All the experts and the political types. They've heard the, uh, the Fauci's, uh, you know, and they, you know, they, they bought into 15 days to flatten the curve. Uh, now that's been, you know, that expression has been sent down the memory hole that doesn't exist anymore. Never happened. Uh, they've heard, oh, one vaccine. Now they hear, oh, I need two vaccines. Oh, now I need boosters. Uh, you have to you have to wear a mask. Uh, no, you don't have to wear a mask.
oh, now you have to wear a mask no matter what. All of this, in my experience, is very corrosive to the public's trust. They start, they, 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 there's a fatigue, there's an exhaustion that kicks in, and people start to doubt and disbelieve that the people that are supposedly in charge really know what the hell they're doing. What, what is your take on the, on the consequences of that kind of back and forth? It's called mission creep. And this has been a problem for the last century when dealing with infectious diseases. If you make promises that you can't keep, such as a vaccine in six months or something like this. Or, you know, we'll just lock you down temporarily till we get our act together just for a couple weeks. And then it turns into months. And then you say, wear masks. And then you say, don't wear masks. And then you say, wear two masks. And then you say, masks don't work, get vaccinated. And then you get vaccinated, wear masks you lose all credibility. And the people that were running this pandemic lost credibility. And then you see nothing changed. Then you see at the moment, this Botswana strain, the Omicron, it's so full of mutations, the thing can barely function. And now we're going to bring out a brand new vaccine for it. You will get your kids immunized against it. We will mandate it. And you wonder why. I mean, like, this is producing a very mild disease at the moment. Now, that could change. But when you look at the mutations in the spike protein and their location, some of these mutations would have been helpful to the virus, but they're canceled out by other mutations. And it's not surprising. This is how it's actually a good thing at the moment if the virus doesn't change because it's helping us build herd immunity. Here you get a virus, you're sick for a couple of days, and then you have a long duration immunity from it. It's not been through the end of a needle in a vaccine. Your own body did it. You know, the studies are showing, you know, right now, these vaccines, the, the, the Pfizer, I think it's about. If I could, if I could interrupt you on that one. Yeah. The, uh, finally, about, uh, about, about two weeks ago, I finally saw in the Wall Street Journal uh, an article that uh, discussed uh, you know, acquired natural immunity. You know, a person that contracts COVID, they're sick for a couple of weeks, and then they recover, like 98, 99% of people who do get it. Uh, and their body, you know, has created uh, natural immunity, like with virtually every other disease that people survive. Um, and now suddenly the Wall Street Journal finally said, oh, gee, you know what? Uh, maybe this natural immunity thing is equal to perhaps even better 
than a vaccine. And I know uh, that uh, Dr. Alexander has compiled, I guess, 130 some odd peer reviewed papers that point to the fact that natural immunity uh, may, in fact, be at least equal to and perhaps superior to any vaccine. And yet you don't hear a word. You know, Fauci and the rest of the CDC people, this Walensky woman, you, you don't hear any, you know, long natural discussion. Chris, Dr. Alexander is 100% correct. And here's why. COVID virus has, I think, about something like somewhere around 19, 20 proteins. I can't remember. When you're infected naturally, the virus is chopped up by specialized immune cells. And bits of the virus are stuck onto the cell surface of your normal cells. And your immune system, the lymphocytes, very specialized lymphocytes, they come by and they examine your cells as they come by. Now, all your cells have a marker on it that says, this is me. And your immune system sees that. This is you. Okay. What's this protein here on your cell surface? That's not you. And it triggers an immune response. So you're looking at a number of different proteins that make up this virus. And you're making an immune response against these. Now, your body will naturally pick out what it thinks is the best response. But you still have made an immune response to others. So if what was once the premier immune response no longer works, like a mutation in the spike protein of the virus, you still have backup. You still have other. Think of a, a cop on the, uh, walking the beat at three in the morning down the streets of New York City. Anything that doesn't look normal, he goes over there and clubs it. Well, okay, now the bad guys are wearing a disguise. And another cop comes down and says, no, 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 this isn't right. So he clubs it. And that becomes the dominant response now. Your body does this automatically. With a vaccine, and this is what we call a, it's not a vaccine, it's a, classified by the FDA as a biological product. It's not classified as a vaccine. The mainstream media call it a vaccine. Okay, Fauci calls it a vaccine. It's a biological product. It's the genetic instructions to make only one protein of the virus. Now, when they came up with this plan, they didn't realize that the protein that the genetic instructions for the protein that they were injecting into you was actually the protein that was causing a majority of the damage to your body, the spike protein. If I just took purified spike protein and injected it into you, you would start abnormal blood clotting. You could start having inflammation of your heart. Uh, a number of things would be occurring. And I would repro be reprogramming your immune system 
overwhelmingly just to be looking for this one protein. And if it mutates to the point where your body no longer recognizes it, then you're back to square one. This is why you can never, once you get a virus at this level of penetration of a population, you cannot vaccinate yourself out of it. Which is why the side effects we're seeing from these vaccines within the first several months were 10 times greater than all the other vaccines that we have for measles, chickenpox, everything else for the last 10 years combined. These things should have been pulled from the market in February, in my opinion, should have been pulled from the market in February of 2021. At that point, Dr. Steve, that is an incredibly, I think, important point to kind of pause on just for a second, uh, because you've highlighted something that uh, is, you know, either underreported or or thrown down the memory hole. There's an effort to eliminate those facts. I I have one last question for you as we move towards a close. But before I actually ask the question, I just want to thank you again uh, for your time, for your really expert and well thought out analysis. You know, everything is reduced to a soundbite nowadays. So it's really our pleasure to have you on and get thoughtful, detailed responses to these questions. It's very important to our listeners. Um, so thank you for being with us. But I, I say that as sort of to tee you up for the last question, which is, you know, folks are worried and they're looking ahead. Uh, they're going into the holiday season now, but they know that you know, the dark days of winter are ahead. Uh, the old traditional, you know, cold and flu season uh, routine. But um, as we go into a new year, I know it's tough to, to play crystal ball and predict the future. But any sort of inclination, any sort of ideas that you have on this, what what can our listeners look forward to in the next couple of months uh, that, that would be that you think might be helpful to them? I, I know it's tough to predict the future. Two points, Chris. Children age five to eleven have a natural immunity to COVID nineteen. This is for two reasons. A couple of the cold viruses are actually coronaviruses. And they get exposed to this, and they have a cross-reactive immunity to some degree. Plus, children also have a very robust immune system. Point two is that children do not have the same high concentration of ACE2 receptors for the COVID virus in their upper airway than adults. They have a much lower density of these receptors. So it takes a little to get them infected. Children have not been a major component of pandemic spread to date of COVID-19. They do spread it, but not to a great degree amongst themselves or to adults. I mean, it does happen, chiefly within families. 
but they haven't really been a major component of the pandemic. And now we're going to inject a still experimental vaccines in an age group where we have really not a lot of data. What we do have suggests one out of 2,700 children will develop heart inflammation from these vaccines. Well, Chris, we've got 28 million children in this age group. The CDC and FDA say, well, you know, it's a mild myocarditis. Well, there is no such thing as a mild myocarditis. You get heart muscle damage, it's going to heal with scarring. What do you think that scarring is going to do when they're 50 and 60 years old? It could be a major problem for heart conduction problems, electrical impulse conduction. We don't know. Why are we doing this? The risk of childhood death is 0.002 to 0.003 percent in uh, in this five-year-old age group. We've lost about, I think it's 170 children from COVID in the United States. And almost overwhelmingly, these children have had pre-existing serious conditions. There were serious things wrong to begin with. This is insanity. What we should be doing is seeing, you know, COVID-19, the last point, is a treatable condition. It's completely treatable. If we catch you early enough, it's got like an 80% effectiveness. And we can give combinations, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. No one wants to admit that these drugs work because that means that they were wrong from day one of the pandemic and that they're partially responsible for hundreds of thousands of innocent Americans dying. And not just that, people follow the United States like lemmings running off the cliff to follow what we did. And we did the wrong thing for some of the reasons we've talked about. Early outpatient treatment was the way forward. We would have had herd immunity by now, Chris. We would have had it long ago if that doctrine had been successfully followed. That was essentially the original pandemic plan. It would have worked. It's working now. Doctors are still using it at great risk to their own careers. And it works. We need to hold people accountable to this now. And show that. See, the, the drug companies are the vaccine manufacturers are indemnified. They were very careful to get that permission to, to do these vaccines. 
And some of them, it looks like there's whistleblower complaints now that they played a little loose with the rules and the results, both for remdesivir and for the vaccines. There needs to be accountability here. And I'm fairly certain if an expert team at clinical trials can be assembled and go through all the original data that the drug companies presented for the emergency use authorization of these vaccines and remdesivir, that there's some bad things that went on. And if that's true, then this indemnification for these vaccine and drug manufacturers should be negated. Dr. Stephen Hatfield's joined us. He's a specialist position and a virologist uh, who has uh, direct firsthand knowledge of what was being done in the administration uh, of the Trump administration in the early days of the outbreak of uh, COVID. Uh, thank you so much for your time, for your expertise. Frankly, I could uh, I could sit on this podcast and, and you know do a, a six hour marathon with you. Uh, but I think what we're going to do instead is circle back to you in a week or two, perhaps after the new year, and get you on again to update and provide greater context as to what's going on, how the how the country is doing, and the public health response uh, to this COVID crisis and to our our national security. We thank you for your time. We thank you for your expertise and for your honest, frank analysis. Something that we don't hear coming from the government. And we know that uh, with your background and your credentials, that you know of what you speak and you're providing us with a great public service with your analysis and your suggestions as to where the country can go and how we can respond to this crisis uh, at the family level from people sitting around a kitchen table talking about what they want to do and how they want to treat their family and their, their loved ones all the way up to the, the corporate board table and and even in the White House, they should listen to your expertise and your analysis. Dr. Stephen Hatfield, uh, thank you for your time. And our folks should go to your website, drstephenhatfield.com, and uh, also order your book uh, and, and appreciate the depth at which you've, anal you've analyzed these subjects and uh, your courage and your dedication in trying to keep Americans healthy and safe. Thank you again. You're welcome, Chris. Nice talking with you. Thanks for listening to Chris Farrell's On Watch podcast. For more information, visit www.judicialwatch.org because no one is above the law.